living in a housing cooperative and all that's required is a lot of work, you know, so there's 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 pluses and, and negatives, but the residents feel like that's the best way to go and we empower them to, to make their their own decisions. Welcome to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast, the show where you learn how to plan, build and live the tiny lifestyle. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and this is episode 160 with Amanda Dellinger. Square One Villages is an amazing organization creating self-managed communities of cost-effective tiny homes for people in need of housing in and around Eugene, Oregon. My guest, Amanda Dellinger, is the Community Relations Director, and if you're curious about tiny home villages, this conversation is a must-listen. We start by exploring the co-op model for housing and delve into all the details of how these tiny home villages are funded, built, and maintained. I hope you stick around. Before we get to that, I want to give a shout out to a listener named Stephanie in New Zealand. Stephanie writes, Hey Ethan, I just want to congratulate you on the epic and informative podcasts. I listen to them while driving and plan to build my container home over the next year. That's awesome, Stephanie, and I really appreciate you getting in contact. If you've been listening for a while, you know I love to hear from podcast listeners. I've even set up a special email address where you can email me with comments, suggestions, guest ideas. And hey, if you ask a question, I might even answer it on the show. If you want to get in touch, all you have to do is email podcast at thetinyhouse.net. And if you really want to help me out, please leave a review of the show in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. All right, let's get on to today's show. I am here with Amanda Dellinger. Amanda is the Community Relations Director at Square One Villages in Eugene, Oregon. In 2016, Amanda's wife taught her how to build while building their tiny house on wheels in Arvada, Colorado, and lived in it for four years. They moved their home to Eugene in 2017 and have fallen in love with the Willamette Valley. Amanda feels strongly that tiny houses provide a powerful opportunity for people in many different situations including those dealing with disabilities, homelessness, or housing insecurity. She's passionate about building opportunities for people coming from vulnerable situations to experience living in them. Amanda Dellinger, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. You're, you're very welcome. It's, it's great to have you. So I was hoping if you could just start by kind of telling us, you know, what, what is Square One Village? There are so many different tiny house communities and tiny house villages, so many different models. So, you know, what's Square One? Absolutely. So Square One Villages started back in 2013 after the eviction of the Occupy camp here in Eugene. And really it started as a, a, a group of people, actually a committee that was assigned by our former mayor, who's now our board president, funny enough, to to come up with innovative solutions to finding somewhere for people to be that didn't that that were unhoused and uh so our our organization was volunteer run uh for the first couple of years and really it started out as our mission was to create a transitional tiny house village called Opportunity Village. In fact, that was the original name of our organization was Opportunity Village. 
And so we worked with the city and we found a city owned lot. And we had an incredible community fundraising campaign and a community building campaign. Mm-hmm. And, and we built 30, well, actually at that time, it was 29 micro shelters, essentially. So it's like a detached bedroom. They're not heated. They are not on permanent foundations. But they, there is a community yurt that is heated. It has a wood-burning stove, a pellet stove, and then shared common facilities. So an outdoor shared kitchen, little, little yurts that have electricity for refrigerators and freezers, and then a, a, a bathroom and a shower facility, and then also laundry. So all of that is shared, and then people have a place that they can go that's just theirs. They can lock the door. They can have their things. So very simple concept. It's a step up from the street and really a, um, a transitional type space. We don't have a, a limit on how long people can be there. But soon after we built that, we realized, wow, what good is a transitional village if there's nowhere for people to transition to. Wait lists were so long. They're still so long. And there's not a lot of options. And so in about 2015, we, uh, we realized that really the, the answer to solving homelessness is creating more affordable, permanent housing. And so we started building Emerald Village, which is also in Eugene. And there's 22 units there. There's 22 homes there on about an acre. And they're, they're full homes. They have heat. They have um, electricity. There's running water, kitchenettes, full bathrooms. Some even have bathtubs. And the way that we approached that was also very community-minded. There was a lot of different architects that um, donated their time, many different builders. And so that was very much a community campaign as well. And then, um, so we changed our name to Square One Villages, and we changed our mission. We made it bigger at that time. And, uh, and then we, in about 20, 2017, we wanted to bring our model to a rural area in Oregon and uh, found a group called the Cottage Village Coalition down in Cottage Grove, Oregon, and found a site down there. Meyer Memorial Trust gave us a grant to purchase this at the about a little bit over one acre where we could build 13 tiny homes and a community center down there. And so that's the campaign that we're just now finishing up. And so really square one has two, two different, two different uh, types of housing. Okay. Really one isn't housing, it's shelter. It's our shelter program. And the other one is permanent affordable housing. Okay. And and I'll say one more and I'll say one more thing, Ethan. That the permanent housing is uh, we create them as housing cooperatives, so they're totally self-ran. Excellent. Yeah, that that is exactly what my next next question was. Right on the homepage, I think for Square One Villages, it says you know a permanently affordable tiny home co-op. Um, can you explain you know what what the co-op model is? Yeah, absolutely. So. There are there are a lot of great pieces about uh, the the co-op model, and uh, the first one that I'll mention is that these projects are completely financially self-sustaining. So we raise the money to develop them, and then 
they're not paying off a mortgage. And so the the monthly, we call them carrying charges. It's like rent, monthly rent. That goes in to pay for all of the operating expenses. And also a portion of it goes into a long-term maintenance reserve so that when it comes time to replace a roof or there's some kind of maintenance needs that's not coming out of residents' pockets, there's funds for that already. And so a housing cooperative, the the all of the residents essentially form a board and um, and then they have elected officials. So president, vice president, treasurer, secretary. And then there's three primary committees that uh, are needed to run a housing cooperative. Administrative committee, which are the elected officials, membership committee and house and grounds. So house and grounds, you know, they manage anything from gardening to small repairs that need to happen, things like that. And the membership committee is who deals with new members, new residents. So the application process, they decide how new residents are selected. They review the applications. They select who will come for an interview and then they they conduct the interview and anyone uh, out of the entire village is invited to the interviews of new residents and then they as as a whole they decide who who becomes the new resident Got it. and uh, and so we really do this to to empower the residents and uh, and and you know create a culture where they feel like they have a lot of agency over where they live that they have like an ownership stake. Mm-hmm. And at Emerald Village, this is a little bit different down in Cottage Village, but at Emerald Village, they pay between 250 and 350 a month for their uh, carrying charge. And $50 of that goes into a long-term maintenance or it goes into a, a savings account, essentially. Nice. So the for the first 30 months. And so if they decide to leave after those 30 months, then they have $1,500 that they could take with them. If they decide to stay, which they can, then that stays in the savings account for them. And so that's their, that's how they gain equity essentially. Mm-hmm. And so the, the residents don't own their home outright. They own a share in the co-op and um, at Emerald Village and Cottage Village are both leasehold co-ops. So the co-op doesn't actually own the homes. But what we're doing for our future villages is we're, we're figuring out how to create a limited equity co-op, which means that the co-op actually owns the homes and improvements on the land. Nice. Do residents have to, to buy in at all or is it just by application? So at Emerald Village, they just pay the first month's rent mm-hmm. and apply. And then at Cottage Village, uh, they, we don't have the $50 a month goes into a savings account for them. Essentially, what we mm-hmm. do is we ask for a $500 share purchase is what it's called. Yeah, It's like a down payment when they move in and then... And then also the first month's rent. So nice. So there's there's a little bit more there. Yeah. And then in the future, when we're doing these limited equity co-ops, which will be how we how we create Peace Village and then also another 
village that we're involved with called C Street Village is there's a share purchase. So depending on how much money we're able to raise, it'll be between $5,000 and $10,000 for a share purchase to essentially buy, uh, buy your share in the co-op. And we're, we're looking at different ways to finance that through our organization mm-hmm. and through, through other ways as well. Very, very amazing. And just, you know, there are very few successful tiny house villages out there. And for one organization, you know, to have now built three or is it three counting? Mm-hmm. The, the, yeah. So having built three, three, that's just amazing. Um, I see on, you know, Emerald village and, um, cottage village that it says, you know, target population. So for cottage village, it's 30 to 40% of the area media median income. And for square one village, it's 15 to 30% of area median income. Um, can you explain kind of what that means and why, why the two are different? Sure. Absolutely. So for Emerald village, we, we really wanted to make this, um, I mean, we want to make all of our villages as affordable as possible. Mm-hmm. And Emerald Village was our first project in trying to figure this out. And we raised about $1.8 million to create the project. And, um, and, and we set those monthly carrying charges, you know, so low so that we could serve a lot of the people who were at Opportunity Village uh, we realized they they do have a monthly income, and there's they just can't afford anything with that monthly income. And so, we we wanted to make it affordable to some of the people coming from Opportunity Village, and just as affordable as possible. I mean, that's that's a that's a obviously a very low monthly rate. And so, AMI is the area median income which for Lane County, it's just under 50 grand a year. And so, so for Emerald Village, we wanted to serve under 30% of that area median income. And, and as far as how it pencils out, you know, over, over the several years now that um, we've had residents there, we actually, we still have three houses that are unfinished at Emerald Village. And and that's really because we had a lot of volunteer labor that were leading the builds um, and uh, different things, you know, happen with volunteer teams and uh, and timelines, you know, are different. And so those are those are still unfinished. So we it, it hasn't quite you know penciled out for a variety of reasons. And with Cottage Village, it's on one acre, but there's only 13 homes instead of 22, right? So there's 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 less of uh, there's less income, and Cottage Village is is about a one just over 1.7 million dollar project, and so what we were able to the the population that we were able to serve had to had to be higher than Emerald Village, even though we wanted it to be lower just because of the amount of homes that we were able to build there and kind of how things would pencil out. And, and so, so yeah, down in Cottage Grove, the monthly payments are between $350 and $500 a month. And that's still very, very affordable 
Yeah, I was going to ask, like, how does that compare to like the average rent for a one bedroom or, or a studio, which I would imagine that's what you might compare these to, you know, in that area? It It's, it, I mean, it's hard to even compare them because it's so in, incredibly different. The last time that that I looked and that our organization looked at, at like, um, you know, one, one bedroom apartment rates was back at the beginning of COVID when we were trying to find places for some of our most vulnerable residents at Opportunity Village to go since there's a lot of shared spaces. And we couldn't find a one bedroom, a studio or anything for under, under a grand a month. Wow. Yeah. And so uh, Eugene actually has one of the tightest housing markets mm-hmm. and Cottage Grove as well. There's only about a 1% vacancy and there's just not enough housing stock. So the, the, the prices are, are just, in, in, just astronomical and there's not a lot of open, there's not a lot of vacancies, right? And so that's actually what causes the, the incredible amount and rising level of homelessness that we see is actually less about personal circumstances and more about the um the amount of housing stock on the market and and affordability the the price of the housing yeah i would imagine that you've got a long waiting list of people who who would like to live there how how long does it take yeah, that's a great question. So at Opportunity Village, we do manage a wait list there. Uh-huh. And it's actually, it's it's longer for single individuals than it is for couples. We do have some units that are suitable for couples at Opportunity Village and some that are good just for singles. But we actually here in Lane County, 83% of the unhoused population are single individuals. And so that's really what we, the, the need that we try to meet. But so at Opportunity Village, you know, sometimes it would get up to a year wait list, but it's, it's very short right now because through COVID, the city and county have funded microsites. So we have two six unit microsites where that we, use of people that were on the Opportunity Village wait list, we moved in there. And those are heated units, which is great. And there's a little bit less, uh, like, you don't have to volunteer as much time in managing the community. But then Emerald Village, so, and Cottage Village, Square One finds and selects the initial residents. But then after the initial residents move in, like I uh, shared earlier, the membership committee they take over the application new membership process they decide how members are selected and what both emerald village and cottage village have decided is that the most equitable way to approach this lottery process so they don't manage a waitlist which is very cumbersome to manage managing waitlist is 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 a very difficult thing yeah yeah and so what they do is they, they only take applications when a unit opens and then there's a week, people have a week to get their application in. 
and then they literally draw a number from a hat each application has a number and they draw a number from a hat or i think they draw three and then they go through the first one that they draw to make sure the application um is is you know filled out correctly and that they're eligible and they check references and then they start mm -hmm. to bring in people to interview and then there's a vote and then so that's kind of how they both select new residents nice yeah and but and but the last time oh sorry i didn't mean to interrupt you well i was ahead. gonna say it just it's an interesting point that you bring up about the wait list because it also takes away any judgment on you know the people who are deciding which i'm sure can be really hard if you're going to decide well who who needs this more you know whose story is is more deserving you know it, it you don't want to go down that road and so it's it makes a lot of sense to do the lottery system right yeah and it's hard for other people because you know there's some people that have been applying for years and they're still yeah. not selected and they wish we had a wait list and you know so there's 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 pluses and and negatives but yeah. the residents feel like that's the best way to go and we empower them to to make their their own decisions and i wanted to say also that living in a housing cooperative and all that's required is a lot of work it's a lot of work and people don't always realize you know how much how much is involved in that and so you know we start we started doing information sessions before people can apply um so that people really understand it's not just a cheap place to live you know to to be able to make it so affordable there's a lot of work that goes into right. it it's a community that you have to also contribute to not just receive something from i'm curious what um and, you know, you can say as much or as little about this, about like where the funding comes from for these projects. But is it, you know, is it mostly like government or is it mostly like private funding? So and then with Cottage Village, since the since Cottage Grove is significantly smaller, it's a rural town. There's about 10,000 people that live there uh -huh. and there's less wealth. Uh, and we uh, we did receive our first public subsidy for that project. We received a half a million dollar grant from Lane County. And then we have relied more heavily on foundations. So there's uh -huh. been about 20 foundations that have funded us anywhere from $1,000 all the way up to our, uh, our, our highest foundation gift gift was from Meyer Memorial Trust to purchase the property for about $200,000. Wow. And then we had three $100,000 gifts. Yep. And then, you know, every, everything in between. And then uh, we, we also had significant community support from uh, donors in Cottage Grove and Eugene and also across the country. And, um, and so we've, we've relied mostly on you know, community fundraising. And now we're establishing relationships with a lot of these foundations, which will be great. But one of the things that we're, that we're, that several of my, uh, my colleagues, my coworkers are working on is a more sustainable funding strategy. So we're looking at like a third, third and third model. And, and actually that's, that's becoming a, a little bit different because our next project just got significantly bigger. I think it's like a $7 million project at this point. 
And so the fundraising portion of that will be about 1.7 million. And then, uh, and then public subsidy, we're looking at lift funds. Uh, we're looking at home funds. So these are, you know, fed, federal funding programs and uh, that, that would fund, I, I think it's looking like up to three or $4 million. And then the other portion of that, we're looking at debt financing. Okay. Wow. So you really, what I'm taking away is that you really have to get creative in a project like this and look to a lot of different sources of funding because it's not, you know, it's not an insignificant amount of money to raise. Absolutely. And, you know, we raised, we raised the 1.8 million with Emerald Village pretty much off of, you know, private donations. And that's really incredible and will probably never happen again. Uh And Eugene is a really, is a really special place. And so to be able to keep building these villages and share them with other communities, you know, we have to figure out a a more sustainable funding model. So that's kind of what, what, what our organization is in the process of doing. Got it. So another thing that, you know, individual tiny house dwellers face when they try to find a place to put their tiny house and then also people and organizations who want to set up some kind of community or village face is just very um restrictive not progressive zoning laws and also building code laws around you know what size houses can be built um i'm curious you know can you speak to what that process was like for for the various villages like was Eugene just all about this or did it take some kind of convincing on on that legal end of things Yeah yeah that's a great question So there's there's always hurdles as far as that goes with Opportunity Village you know where we could do something like that was the that where it's located now is a pretty industrial area and there's not since it's technically a shelter, it's not a uh, a housing development. Okay. There are a lot of restrictions on where something like that can be placed. We're actually in the process of looking for a permanent spot where we can, because we're going to have to move Opportunity Village in June of 2023. And so we're trying to figure out, you know, what that looks like. And we do have this other three-acre property that a donor or major donor just recently purchased and donated to us, but we can't move Opportunity Village there because of the the zoning. It just doesn't allow for a shelter. So there's, you know, there's uh, <laughs> there's a lot that that we kind of have to contend with, and then there's also a lot that that we have to advocate for. For example with emerald village we started building that before the uh the house bill 2737 and appendix q were passed which i don't know how familiar you are with either of those or the the oregon reach code but essentially one of our major donors who is an incredible partner in our work and then Dan Bryant, our executive director, and Andrew Heben, our project director, they had done back in 2017 a lot of political work in advocating for 
this bill and this code to be adopted, which essentially allows for the lofts in the tiny homes to be legal sleeping lofts. Emerald Village, the lofts there are only um, storage, are only storage lofts, which, you know, some people still sleep in them, but if some, something happens and someone falls out, then it's in the lease that, you know, people aren't supposed to be sleeping up there. And so now down in Cottage, at, at Cottage Village, they are legally permitted sleeping lofts there, um, and part of the code is having an egress window and then also fire sprinklers throughout the house. Nice. Yeah. And uh, so, and then with Emerald Village, it's our, on R1 zoned property, which we're able to do essentially uh, multi, multi-family detached housing. And so we're we're able to do that legally, uh, and then it's the same thing with with Cottage Village, and you know I'm not a I'm not a city planner, so I don't know. And thankfully, we have Andy Heben who knows an incredible amount about these kinds of, you know, laws and um and and issues for these different issues. But to your point about people who build um, their homes, especially tiny houses on wheels, I think that. What I understand before I came on board with our organization um, when we were creating Emerald Village was they were trying to figure out how to how we could allow for tiny houses on wheels, you know, which it just it's there's not we're not at the point yet where that's legal, you know, so essentially people who have tiny houses on wheels where they park, depending on I mean, if you're if you're in the country. I think there's places in Eugene where it's legal, but not everywhere in Eugene. And same thing with Cottage Grove. You have to rely on your neighbors not complaining because it's not technically legal, but it's all complaint based, right? Yeah. There was definitely there was definitely some things to uh, figure out and get around, but yeah, like I said, luckily we have we have some really smart people with our organization. Sounds like it. Sounds like it. How big is the organization? Like how many people um, are kind of on the administrative side of, of the company, the organization? Yeah. So we have on, so we have four carpenters, which obviously Mm -hmm. that's not administrative. And then um, let's see here, myself, Dan, Andy, Jeff, Raquel, and then our bookkeeping and our CFO, the seven i think there's yeah there's eight people on the administrative staff um and then there's another three people that were just recently hired so technically there's 11 but those three people that were just hired Mm -hmm. were directly from covid funding and so you know that that might be temporary we don't we don't mm-hmm. really know but you could consider them too so 11 at this point and okay. that just recently jumped up and what what does a community relations director what what do you do sure so i i love my title so much because i get that question often like hmm what does that mean well uh it it includes the development director role uh not developing housing but development as far as fundraising goes mm-hmm. so I, I i head up our fundraising and events and i uh, do a lot of pr work marketing communications social media also 
kind of part of my role is like a general office manager. So I'm kind of the the first point of contact in our organization anytime someone reaches out. Mm-hmm. And so it's a it's a it's a it's a lot of different things, right? People in small organizations wear a lot of different hats. Yeah, absolutely. And then I also I lead our uh, I'm I'm a co-facilitator of our equity work, our diversity, equity and inclusion work and outreach as, as far as that goes as well. Nice. Well, this is I mean, so fascinating. Is there anything, you know, about the organization or the model that, that I haven't asked you? Because I'm like I'm a complete novice to this topic of, you know, this type of development. So, you know. What didn't I ask you? What 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 are you excited to tell our listeners about? Yeah, well, I just you you've asked a lot of really great questions, Ethan. And the only other thing that I'll share um, that I haven't really touched on yet is uh, is something called the village model. So mm-hmm. I, I spoke a little bit about how we are developing a more sustainable financing strategy, so that other other communities can um, and other organizations can kind of use this model and share it and and build their own communities and such and and so the the village model you know in includes that financing strategy that i mentioned it includes the the uh not not just tiny houses but compact structures so it could look like a, a smaller cottage or something like that and there's uh there's there's several different elements to the village model that I think that are uh are fascinating. And this is something that we are in the process of developing now, again with funds from Meyer Memorial Trust, so that so that we can share as we consult with other organizations. And we do have a couple of affiliate organizations now mm-hmm. that that we work directly with. And then we also have since you can imagine there's so many people that that reach out to us wanting to learn you know ask us a million questions and figure and figure out how to do something similar and so what we've created is uh we call it our village toolbox and so we have all of our resources from opportunity village emerald village and cottage village and we'll add the resources from our our next villages available to to members on our website all electronically and so people can become a member at just five dollars a month Um, at ten dollars a month which is called the village builder member people can get a free set of tiny house plans included awesome and also yeah and also a visual uh virtual presentation on it it takes a community to build a village and so, you know, that's that's an incredible resource for people. And then we also do consultations as well. Fantastic. Well, it's a it's a really great model and I just am so happy to hear about it and so happy that it's been so successful so far. Um Thank you. I was curious if if you are willing to share can can you tell me about your own tiny house journey because it sounds like you're you also come to this role from a position of experience as a tiny house dweller oh my gosh i would love to so and 
honestly, my personal experience is really how I found uh, this professional um, opportunity. Mm -hmm. So back in 2016 is when we decided to build our tiny house. And again, I had no construction experience whatsoever, but my wife did. And, uh, and so we started, we started building our home. And we were in we were in Arvada, Colorado at the time, which I'm from Colorado, but we uh, really both wanted to be out here in in the Eugene area. And so I think it was one day where I was especially wanting out of Denver or Arvada, Colorado. I did some research on Eugene, what's going on in the tiny house um, movement in Eugene. And I found I found our organization, which we were just Opportunity Village at the time. And I was like, wow, I really, I definitely want to be involved with them when I get there. It's like really the perfect thing. And, uh, and so, so yeah, we took about nine months uh, building our house and it was just, it was such an, it was such an incredible journey. I remember at one point I was telling my wife, like, how are we going to build the tiny house? We don't even have a place where we could build it. And she goes, yeah, but it like once we once we commit to doing it, then we'll have the conversations that lead us to opportunities like that. And I was like, oh yeah, of course you're right. And so then it was like that next week that we had a dinner party, and this guy that she knew came over, and we were telling him about it, and that we were looking for a place to build. And he was like, oh well, I have a three acre lot in Arvada. You guys can just you guys can just build there. And he like, he refused to charge us any rent or even let us pay for our electricity. We built, so we built the house there and then we actually lived in the house. Let's see from November in 2016 to March in 2017. And, uh, and then we moved, we moved the house out to, uh, out to Eugene in March of 2017. Um, and, and yeah, I would say that for me, deciding to build the tiny house, I have a uh, permanent unpredictable disability. And, um, and I never, I never know um, when, uh, there's been times in my past where I haven't been able to, to use the left side of my body, haven't been able to Wow. Um, you know, drive a car or walk or, or work. And, and so I've, I've, I, I have multiple sclerosis and mm-hmm. I have found ways to, to manage the disease through nutrition, diet, stress management, mm-hmm. and definitely lifestyle. And deciding to build a tiny house had a lot to do with that. Cause I've always seen myself as a provider and I've always wanted a family, uh-huh. uh, especially with, with my wife. And and I, I saw the tiny house as a stepping stone to be able to provide a life that I could afford no matter what the, the, the disability status was. And it really has been an incredible stepping stone. We actually, we just bought uh, an old, like a hundred year old farmhouse on a two acre farm last summer. Cool. Um, and we have our tiny house here and two of our best friends will be moving into it. And, and I, I mean, learning how to build, I feel like, I feel like is one of the most empowering things that, that someone can learn how to, how to build your own home. I feel like more, more people should have that opportunity. 
and that that it it provides um it made my future so much brighter in my mind and and I feel like yeah it just gave me a, a huge boost up and uh we have a really beautiful tiny house I'm really super proud of of what we've created and and so so yeah that's a little bit about our journey awesome well oh and then I'll also say Ethan I'll also say that we um we lived in our tiny house with our child for the first 10 months of her life wow which was also a a very big adventure <laughs> and um and so yeah it's it's definitely doable you know living in tiny houses with the family and uh and so so yeah i just wanted to add that very cool well i really really enjoyed this conversation and i i so appreciate you being on the show i will link to square one village great from the show notes page for this episode which um i don't know off the top of my head right now but people who are listening i'll say that in the outro so definitely you know check out square one village donate if you can it's a really just great cause from i i i feel like i've now vetted it as a great cause i i could tell it was a great cause before we spoke but <laughs> now i'm i'm very much convinced oh, thank you so much ethan you're very welcome thanks amanda <laughs> oh i was so excited for this and i just yeah i'm i'm, I'm really grateful for you and uh thanks so much for having me Thank you so much to Amanda Dellinger for being a guest on the show. You can find the show notes, including a full transcript, links to Square One Villages, and photos of their beautiful tiny homes at thetinyhouse.net slash 160. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash 160. Well, that's all for this week. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and I'll be back next week with another episode of the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast.